To humans, wake up, wise up, do what you can, individually and together. Hello, I'm Hannah Mulvaney and welcome to the Earth to Humans podcast. When I first heard about the organisation that today's guest, Jennifer Hartman, works for, I felt like I could have found my dream conservation job. Two of my greatest loves in life combined dogs and biology. Apparently this is quite a common perception, but it takes a very special type of person and an even more special type of dog to join this well-oiled pack. Together, these human canine teams head out into some of the most hostile environments on the planet for days or weeks at a time, making important new discoveries, contributing to crucial conservation work and informing management plans for ecosystems and the species that call them home. Jennifer, do you want to start by introducing yourself and um, the incredible thing that you run? (laughs) Yeah, I always, like, how do I make this short and succinct? Yeah, my name is Jennifer Hartman, and I am a research scientist and detection dog. Um, We like to call our handlers Bounders with Rogue Detection Teams, which is a conservation detection dog program based in Washington State, USA. But we travel all over the world with our dogs. And the premise basically is that um, we rescue fetch obsessed dogs and teach them to sniff for endangered species. There's quite a few different groups of dogs all around the world who do conservation work. You've just mentioned that yours are specifically trained to detect endangered species. Is that right? Yeah, many programs. Are, yeah, there's a lot of different programs out there um, doing wildlife uh, work or conservation work. And so there, it can be a mix. We do detection and that means we, we actually are looking for air scenting dogs. We're not doing tracking. So we don't do any of the like anti-poaching apprehending. Uh, so we're less like, you know, military or law enforcement. Uh, what we teach our dogs, it really depends, but mostly it's scat or feces because there's just a lot of information and data you can like pull out from scat, um, much like going to the doctor and getting a blood sample. And what's wonderful about this is it's non-invasive. So we don't have to capture or collar animals. We can get that same information from a pile of poo, but it doesn't just like stop at poo. A lot of people think like, oh, you're a professional poo collector. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that's one way of putting it. But our dogs also sniff for viruses and plants. They can sniff for eggs. So if, uh, we've done sea turtle nest detection before. Um, we can search for live animals. So invasive iguanas, we can search for carcasses. So bat mortalities or bird mortalities at uh, wind facilities. So it's kind of just, I always like to say, and I'm probably a broken record, but the sky's the limit. It's really, the limit is possibly researchers not knowing about this methodology. Um, and so not utilizing it, utilizing it or incorporating it into their, their research. So, you know, the more programs there are out there, the more rescue dogs were able to put out in the field, the more we hope this will grow. And then before you know it, maybe there'll be, you know, even more dogs all over the world helping wildlife. Going back to the poo collection, sorry, just to (laughs) raise that point again. (laughs) I like poo, so it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) What information, it's funny because as a biologist, obviously poo is such a valuable resource. It's such a a content-rich source. But I just wondered if you could, for those listeners who don't know, why you would go around collecting poo all over the world, um, amongst the other things that you do, of course. What is it that you're looking for? That really depends on the project. And that's what's so fascinating about this field is we're constantly pivoting. So for some projects, they might want a population estimate. Some projects might want, like we're working on one with Sierra Nevada Red Fox, and it's a long-term genetic study kind of analyzing how the population changes. And you can learn whether they're going to have a population sink, are they inbreeding? And that can affect management. So how agencies might assist in the recovery of an endangered species if they can learn before, you know, something happens that they 
the species is facing a potential decline because of inbreeding. Because with endangered species, oftentimes when there's only 20 left on the landscape, it's a little challenging. So there's that, but you can also get hormones. Prior to developing rogue detection teams, we actually worked with an endangered orca whale. And that project specifically was analyzing the scat that the dogs detected to learn about the stress hormones. So what are these whales facing and why, why might they be declining? And a lot, there's a lot of theories and hypotheses. Well, there's a lot of boat traffic and it's changing their feeding habits, but why are, why are these females aborting their firstborns? And so you can learn about the stress levels as well as toxins. And that's really critical too, because we can kind of figure out what, which landscapes might um, have higher disease or toxin levels in it. And then you can then take mitigation to help kind of recover that landscape. So there's so much that we can learn from SCAT and that's not, that's not even all of it. Um, And obviously you can learn sex and reproduction productive status and diet. And diet's really interesting too. We're about to go on a diet project of seven different species. And the reason for that is we kind of want to learn if this species was going to be reintroduced here, is this a viable landscape? You can't just plop a species there because they historically lived there and be like, okay, we did, we did our work. We're all done. You really want to analyze and assess if this is an appropriate environment to reintroduce uh, an endangered species. So there's so much goes into scat work and I find it so fascinating. It's kind of like a a treasure hunt. (laughs) You guys collect the scat and do you do analysis as well when you're in the field or is that, and that that information is then handed over to the people that hire you guys? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. I think a lot of folks don't realize that this is a multi-part method. So the first part obviously is deploying dog teams in the field and that that's, you know, detection dog with their bounder. And we go out and we, you know, assess the landscape based on the species we're tasked with serving for. And that's how we guide our dogs to then uh, maximize data collection. And by data, I mean, in this case, fecal, but it can be other products as well. And then yes, we collect it. And depending on where it's going to go, depending on the genetics lab um, or how it's going to be analyzed, we collect it in different ways. So we might dehydrate it, or we might put it in ethanol, or we might freeze it. And then um, it goes off to the various labs. And then either the master students or PhD students or whatever genetics lab is doing the analysis, they will pull apart all the individual information that they need. And um, to me, it's <laughs> uh, people think our work is really fascinating. I think what happens in the lab is, is just fascinating. And I would love to follow for a day as they do uh, all of this poop analysis, because there's, it's just like, how do you answer these questions? How do you pull that from what we collect in the field? And I think it's just fascinating. So that's the second part. And then of course we have to write all that up and share those methodologies. And that's, I think where there's kind of a lag in getting this information out there because it takes so long to, to run the analysis and then get that information out there. So that might be why uh, this is still kind of a periphery method, you know, there's, uh, it's a multi, multi-step process. The very first step in this process is to pick the dog and something that you've touched on. And I know is really important to your organization is that these dogs are rescue dogs. They've come from the shelter. So what are you looking for when you go to the shelter? What's the criteria of, of one of your dogs? That's kind of the crux of it, right? For me, the why, why did this was wildlife conservation, but over the years, I feel like my why is actually the dogs because, and I was not a dog person originally when I first started in this field, but finding these, what we call, we like to call them diamond in the roughs or these misfits or rapscallions or the rogue dogs. They're, they're kind of the, these unwanted dogs. They have this incredible energy and they have this obsession to play fetch and they don't make ideal home pets because they just need to play ball. That's it. They don't then make a human connection very easily because they're so fixated on needing and wanting to play ball. And so this can manifest as either destructive behavior or even aggressive behavior, even though they may not be destructive or aggressive. But unfortunately, many times they're labeled this because they simply don't have an outlet. And so we've actually pulled a few of our dogs from euthanasia uh, lists because they are ideal for what we do. And when we bring them in many times because they're shelter or rescue dogs, they might be shy or nervous, scared, 
and to watch them kind of blossom, to watch them go from no one wanted me to now I have this really important job and you depend on me. You can just see their confidence grow. You can see them like their body, they're just changes. They're more confident. And then that just in me as, as the handler kind of breeds this just like joy and awe. And um, it feeds and fuels my passion for the, for the field more. So I love when we're able to adopt more or new canine talent, because I feel like we're really fulfilling our mission of animals helping wildlife. Just think it's brilliant. (laughs) I wish, I wish it existed um, in more places and just rescue dogs have a lot of heart to give. And I think the other thing that I love about it is these dogs do make human connection. You know, once you bring them in, they have that outlet. They just change. And and you see this other side of them of like, they do want love. They do want companionship. They do want respect. They do want a partnership with working alongside humans. And um, I think that's a beautiful thing to watch. (laughs) These are quite specific criteria for the dogs that you take on to be on your team. But was there a first dog who had these qualities who you then thought they would be excellent qualities for the rest of the team? Or I'm just wondering how those criteria were first created. Ah, yeah. And I can't take credit for that. Before I started in this field, like 15 years ago or 16, I've I've lost count. Um, It was still really new, at least here in the United States. It had been going on for maybe a few years before I I got into the field. And um, at that time, the program I originally worked for, they were training with the Washington Department of Corrections. So um, this woman, Barbara Davenport, worked with a lot of canine officers. So bringing in shelter and rescue dogs who had this high drive and then pairing them with policemen or uh, law enforcement. And um, so this criteria was kind of developed from everything that they had learned. And I, I can't speak to how they found that out, but Really what I think there are many dog breeds out there that are quote unquote high drive. And so you can get a purebred and they, and they are, you know, bred to do this thing or, or through their genetics, they mostly have this inclination. And I think someone somewhere down the line had the brilliant idea. It's like, well, this exists in shelter dogs too. They don't need to be purebred. There's high drive in, you know, the mutts of the world too, precisely because that's, you know, that's just how <laughs> uh, genetics work. But finding those the shelter dogs that have this, yeah, it takes a very you know special search image. And initially, we would go all like seek, not actually travel, but put out um, inquiries all over the United States to learn whether or not shelters had high drive dogs. Now, because it's um, the field has grown, we're actually getting more inquiries about high drive dogs than we're able to, you know, adopt or keep up with. So I do think that as this field grows and people are learning about it, they're like, oh my gosh, I have the perfect job um, and dog for this. And so that's really exciting to see. We just need to be able to bring more people in. And that's the other important component of, of the work that we do is the people I'd I say I'd say are actually harder to find than the, than the dogs. <laughs> and these are the bounders that you've mentioned. So why why are they called bounders? What's the meaning behind that? Yeah, it's a little silly, but hopefully sweet. I know that we do very serious scientific research, and you know we're we're biologists and field scientists out there, but we like to have fun with what we do. And um, as we were developing rogues. We never really felt that canine handler described what we do. We, we feel like we are learning as much from the dogs as we are hoping to teach them. And handler to me, at least, and I'm an English literature major, so words are important. It makes me think of like, I'm, it's from like the top down. Like I, I am telling the dog what to do. I'm, in, I'm instructing them. I'm directing them. And I'm basically, I'm handling them. And so there wasn't a lot of um, description in that term that described the relationship that we develop with our dogs, which is very much an uh, equal parts. And in some cases, when I'm working, when I was new and I was working with veteran dogs, they were very much teaching me. I had no, I was not teaching them anything other, you know, they were, they were teaching me, you need to be faster on your rewards. You need to pay more attention to my subtle changes of behavior, and you need to be more on top of all this. And I was like, okay, Scooby, we'll do. I'll work on that next time. Okay, Allie, got it. And so in that way, we developed a different word that meant more to us. 
And if other handlers out there, if this means the same to you, we encourage folks to use it. It's not just, you know, us rogues, but we felt bound to the dogs. So once we adopted them, we adopt for life. We don't rent or sell our dogs. And for this method to work, you have to get to know these dogs on a really intimate level. And that's more than, I, I know people with their pet dogs love them. That's, that's unquestioned, but to work alongside them and figure out these kind of problem solving and answers to these questions, you really have to trust your dog. And to figure out that trust, you have to develop this relationship. So we really feel bound to the dogs um, in this way. And we also feel bound to the environments that we work in. Like if I didn't care about what it was that we were going to search, then it, it would all fall apart. Like if I got bored or tired or drained or just like, I'm not really into moose. So I'm not going to, you know, like the dog is on autopilot, they'll find moose. That's not correct. There really has to be this relationship between the dog and the handler or bounder and with the environment. Um, and then we're also bound to the method. So as this method goes through growing pains and, and develops more, a lot of people think like, oh, I want to do this. It's the perfect job for me uh, without realizing all of the complexities that go into it. And so in some ways we're seeing, you know, every step we take forward, we take a few steps back. And a lot of our work is creating confidence in the methodology so that it can be utilized more around the world. It's not that we want all the work, but that we want there to be viable teams being put out on the landscape, conducting ethical wildlife surveys, working alongside dogs, not just, I love dogs in the environment, hence we'll make a perfect match. And so that's where the word bounder came from. It's, it's multifaceted and that's probably a way too long explanation, but so yeah, we call our handlers bounders. <laughs> I came across your organization first and foremost on Instagram and I was just seeing all of these adorable stories and all these like dogs with jobs just breaks my heart. Like there's just something about it that just, it's just my favorite thing in the entire world. And there's a uh, a whole thing called dogs with extraordinary jobs um and this kind of fit into that 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 story and it's just really 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 adorable but as a as a conservation scientist who loves dogs I did immediately think that's my dream job for sure <laughs> um, but obviously you have you have these criteria for the dogs but you have criteria for the bounders too like the bounding to the landscape and that having to have that relationship with your dog. So they're the kind of qualities that you're looking for in the people that work for you, which can make it quite tricky to find people that are dedicated to both the landscape and to the dog. Is that the... It's so true. Yeah, I think like with many things, we, we see it through rosy colored lenses and and I'm I'm no different. I If I saw this from the outside, I'd be like, yes, me, I want to do this. Or maybe could I teach a cat to do it? Cause I really like cats. <laughs> um, but all kidding aside, the people who excel in this field, I I've met some incredible people through the years and they really put their, their ego aside. We're never done learning. Uh, so it's not like I go through a course I'm given, handed a certificate and I'm done. Voila, you are a canine handler. What our philosophy is, um, and because we part of our mission is to bring in more dogs, is um, every dog is different just as every person is different. And we can't expect one dog to perform exactly as the other. So even though it's a methodology and we have to follow certain guidelines and with every new dog, we're learning new things. And to learn how to communicate with another species, you, you got to kind of think about like, wow, that's actually pretty incredible. I think we take it for granted that we have dogs in our lives and that they're so willing to meld and fold into our lives. But when you think about tapping into and connecting with a dog to search for something together, that to me is just mind-blowing because I don't speak dog and dog doesn't speak my language. And yet we're finding out a, a common place where we can go out there together. And there might be times I'm not, I'm not talking at all the entire day because my dog and I are just reading each other as we're moving through the landscape and weaving and, and I'm watching his changes of behaviors and he's watching me, you know, slowly going this way. He's like, okay, we're going this way. And I, I think that's a beautiful thing. And I, I don't know many other animals that we could do that with. And I, I think it's incredibly special and I don't want to take it for granted. 
And so the people we bring in, I think it's very frustrating at first because they have to learn from all of our different dogs and they want to just focus on one, be like, I got this dog down. And it's like, no, if you think you've got that dog down, then you need to go back to square one and start working with all these other dogs because we're never done. Like Philson, the dog I'm working with, I'm still learning new things from him. And I'm fascinated by trying to tap into that side of him because if I ever stop, then I think Filson will stop. His, his joy from the job isn't just fetch. It's like figuring this out with me. And the other thing is, you know, we do a lot of field work. It's not sexy. Yeah, we get to travel and we get to go to some really fantastic places, but we're on the job. So when I'm in Africa, I'm not on safari. I'm waking up at, you know, 4.30 in the morning to beat the heat. And I'm, you know, battling with tick disease and um, have to be careful that my dog doesn't go near water to get eaten by a crocodile and have to be aware of, are there lions in those bushes? Are willows buffalo charge? Um, is that a black mamba? Oh my gosh, come back over here, Scooby. <laughs> so um, there's very, there's very much like life and death situations sometimes. And we're, we also work solo. So it takes a person with a lot of grit and determination. And a lot of people, I think, like the idea of working with a dog, but don't realize that we're out there for eight hours a day and it can be hot. It can be cold. It can be wet. It can be muddy. It can be buggy. And it's not, we're walking in a national park. I mean, sometimes we've worked in national parks, but it's not a, we're on trail and it's, you know, sound of music. <laughs> so oftentimes we're, we're camping in the jungle and we're surrounded with a group of really awesome rangers who don't speak our language. Like when we were in Vietnam and we have to kind of figure out how we can find a, a species and communicate um, together with our team to, you know, and there's just all these complexities that go into the work that, you know, well, we just don't have time enough to share, but it's much more than dog plus human in the environment. And that takes, it takes a bit of a learning curve for, for folks. I think they, the folks who stay past a year or two, um, that's when they start really understanding the method. On your website, there's 14 dogs. Is that the current number or is that? Oh yeah, we have not updated. And I, <laughs> we just adopted a bunch of new dogs and we have not added them to our website yet. So we're over 20 plus dogs now, I think 24. It's really exciting. We, we have, we had a product and we're kind of limited by the number of dogs we can adopt um, depending on the projects that we get. And so uh, we have this really fantastic partnership with Bat, Bats Conservation International. And um, we were able to bring in new dogs for this really fun project with them. And that was really meaningful because the messages that we get from the shelters and the rescues and the fosters from the dogs that we bring on, I think they are truly the, the real heroes of the story. But they're just so grateful that these dogs that they've cared for are finally finding maybe their new lease on life. And um, so that's the most maybe tangible thing I can take away from our work is bringing jobs, which is a game to the dogs, uh, to these dogs, because it's sad to think of them in a shelter and not, not having someone connect with them. And I don't know, that's where I derive the most joy from the work that we do. What is your dog called? My dog, current, uh, my current dog is Filson, and I just Filson. adopted <laughs> a new dog named Willow. So Willow and Filson. <laughs> so bounders can have more than one dog. Yes. Yes. And no. When we're on a field project, we're only working with one dog at a time, but because we're learning from all of our different dogs, we develop different relationships with them. And um, in many cases we'll fall in love with one or two or three. And eventually as a, as a bounder's career develops, they will settle and start to work with mainly one or two dogs. And it really depends on the project. Like maybe, you know, um, Max doesn't do well in the heat, so he didn't go to Cambodia with me, and we sent um, Scooby instead. But Max really does well on Fisher projects, so we sent Max on some of our Fisher work. And in that way, I got to work both, and that was, you know, they were my original detection dogs and passed uh, recently. And so then I don't know how much longer I want to do this work because it's so hard to lose them, but I already had Filson at that time. I had a third <laughs> because he was just, he came when he arrived, he was just so adorable. He, the folks who brought him opened up their trunk and out popped his head from this 
cloth crate. And I was like, what cattle dog can travel on a cloth crate and not destroy it? And he has these big bug eyes and he looks like a Disney character. And he's like, here I am. And I was just like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. So it was like, love at first sight. I didn't want another dog. I had my two heart dogs already, but Filson just kind of happened uh, unexpectedly. And I, I guess it's the same for Willow too. She's a little special nugget. I, I actually just adopted a few weeks ago. So <laughs> I know that from reading your website and what you've mentioned about some being good in the heat, some being good on fish projects, there are some dogs that are trained specifically for specific types of detection work too. Is that right? Yes and no. So some programs, for example, might only have a team of invasive species detection dogs. And so they only sniff out, say, mussels or invasive plants. What we learned very early on is that the dogs could learn multiple odors. And if we only had a fisher dog and we only had one fisher project, that might mean that dog's not getting out on a project for six months. And obviously with high drive fetch obsessed dogs, we wanted to keep them in the field. I mean, this is the thing that they love and they excel at. Um, we've had dogs when they see the cars at the end of the day and they've been hiking for 40 kilometers. They're like, no. And they run away from the car because they want to keep searching. They love it that much. So we wanted to keep these dogs with jobs. And in that way, we started teaching other odors. Um, my dog Scooby, for example, was on over 40 in his career. And so he would pop from, from different project to different project, depending on the specific needs. And a lot of that has to do with the scheduling too. So that's kind of the boring part, but that's also why we might have a dog not go on one project and go on another, because that's the, the team that we have available for that particular project. So we're a little different, or, or I don't know if we're different. I just know that we teach our dogs multiple odors from invasive plants to, to fecal, to caterpillar larvae, to you know live animals, whereas some programs might just focus, just depending on how they run. And the training process for the average dog because obviously you have to train your bounders, but you have to train the dogs too. How long are you usually looking at before they are able to go out into the field or is it completely varied? Well, uh, varied, yes, but it's actually very quick. So true story. <laughs> we don't like sharing this too much because I think it gives a misconception, but um, our lead instructor, Heath Smith, has been in the field for over 20 years. So I'll preface it with that. Like we had a, a veteran bounder. We picked up a dog named Dio from the shelter, drove him to the field site, taught him the game, and he was literally working the next day. But that's that's paired with someone who knew what he was doing. He was able to give this dog the confidence and had obviously his timing of rewards down. And, and so that really helps communicate to the dogs what we're asking. Um, the more that we're able to clearly pair in their mind that ball equals odor. So I would not suggest that. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that. So for the most part, though, I'd say the dogs pick up on the game much quicker. And it can take anywhere between a week to three weeks, depending on the dog. Other skills that we're obviously developing include working in partnership with a handler. So some dogs are very independent. Some, when they come, they've never really been outside before. And so they might have this newfound freedom and want to just like go. So we also have to layer in how dogs alert, you know, stop and give their bounders a really strong, like here it is. And they stay. And obviously a big thing in our field is not chasing wildlife. So making the game of fetch, like the most fun thing for the most part, most of our dogs are just fixated with the ball. Um, but in certain cir circumstances, when the dog isn't, we have to learn how we can work with them as a team. And all of that takes time. So the bounders, on the other hand, it's, it's a multi-step process, but in our ideal world, they would come and we would teach for like about a month. And then they, after that, then they would shadow us in the field for maybe another month before we ever send them on their own project. And then we would shadow them a bit. And then they, they go into the field on maybe one of their first field projects. Um, but we're still in close communication with them and, and helping along the way. But like I said before, it takes about a year or two for, for new bounders to really start grasping the method and the type of communication that, that we're developing. And I think some people can come into this field kind of expecting the dog to do all the work. So they don't realize just how much of the, the piece of the puzzle, the missing piece is them and realizing that they really have to take that extra step to connect. And if they don't, yeah, the dog's just not going to work. So they might 
frequently we hear they, they blame it on the dog. Like, oh, the dog's not interested or, you know, the dog is bored or this or that. And really, and that's why it's very challenging to be a bounder is we really have to look in the mirror and say, okay, what is, if this is what my dog's doing, what is it that, that says about me in this current moment? What messages subtle or vocal am I giving that might be causing this behavior? So dogs are much more easy to work with <laughs> than people. And so while the emphasis is mostly on the dogs and I get it, they're cute and fluffy and sweet and amazing. Truly the, the biggest challenge is finding these persons that can work alongside them. I was just wondering with the dogs, where do they live? Do they live with the bounders? Do they live in uh, together? Yeah, great question. Our dog's welfare is very important to us. And um, while, although they're working dogs, we also want to consider that, you know, this is their one life to live. And we want to make sure that they're receiving safe, quiet places with healthy structure and balance to maintain, you know, their, their work in the field. So our dogs do stay with their bounders. So this, but this can look very different depending on the project. You know, there's not a lot of funding in conservation. So many times I'm camping out of the back of my car. And so Filson's right there next to me and my car is my bedroom, my office, my um, kitchen, and obviously my vehicle, or we'll be backpacking. And then Filson and I are living out of a tent, or I might be living in a jungle where you don't want to put a tent down because of how wet it is and leeches. So you're in a hammock and the dogs stay in the hammock, but they're always with their bounder. And then if we do have a field house, then the dogs stay in the same room with their bounder, but they do stay in uh, large wire crates. And we like to call them their dens. It's the place where the dogs can go to kind of unwind and turn off. So imagine a pet dog whose life is incorporated with their family. When the person gets up, they get up. And there's all, always this kind of periphery going on, like, you know, really being in tune with their person. And for our dogs to continue to do really incredible work on day one, the same that they do on day five, we want them to rest. So we kind of give them their quiet space to go into at the end of the field day and kind of just unwind. And they really, really love it. We have dogs that like will run across the field and come into their den because they're like, I'm ready for my solo time. And you're like, oh, that's adorable. Because I feel that too as an introvert. Um, <laughs> so typically if you, if you talk about keeping dogs in crates, alarm bells goes off. But most of our work is outside and it's, it's pretty intense and physical. And I, I wish sometimes that someone would, would put me in a quiet place when I got back from the field so that I could nap, but the bounders then are doing data. They're preparing for the next day. They're charging gear. Um, they're having calls with our project investigators. And before you know it, you know, it's, it can be a really long day, but the dogs <laughs> meanwhile are snoozing away. And that makes me feel really good. Like, okay, at least I got this figured out. Like you're resting and we'll go out tomorrow and you'll be um, jazzed to, to continue to sniff. With this bond that the, that the bounder and the dog have, and not only working together, living together, being in these really challenging environments and being, I don't know, I know that for a lot of people, their dog is their is their safe space kind of thing it's their emotional support system like it goes beyond that almost what you're talking about with the bond that the person and the dog would have and obviously you touched on losing a dog like that must be so obviously losing any pet is heartbreaking but that must just be I don't know life-changingly horrendous yeah I don't know how much I can talk about it but I do think it's an important topic in this field that doesn't get discussed, but continuing to do the work after losing one of these amazing dogs that we've had the privilege to work alongside, um, <clears throat> it, I, I don't have words for it. I don't have words for the relationship that we develop in the first place. And I don't, I don't have words for what it means when they, when they pass. If it wasn't for Filson, who I'd already had in my pack, I don't, I don't think I'd still be doing this um losing max and scooby is yeah is is life altering right they they altered my life to begin with when i when i met them it changed the entire trajectory of of where i thought my life would go and then to lose this piece of yourself and it's like the you lose the best pieces of yourself because these dogs 
accept you in that moment for who you are, all of your faults, all of your mistakes. And I know that's true for pets too. And that's, what's so incredible about our relationships with domestic animals. Cause this could be said about cows and chickens, you know, I don't have them, but I've heard of folks who, who have these intense relationships and learn how to communicate with these animals on, on their level. And I think when people think about this field as their dream job, I want to caution them that it's, it's the most challenging thing that you will ever do, not only to learn, to listen and communicate and be patient. And, but I, I think the secret ingredient in our work is the love that we develop. I think as scientists, you know, we like to think about different tools that we can use to get the job done. And in some cases, detection dogs are called tools uh, to do particular work. And in some cases, yes, you'll have such an insane high drive dog. All they want to do is work. And, and, and maybe they don't really want to make a connection with, with a human. But for, for me, what I have found when I go out in the field, that the only way I do what we do is by giving up a piece of myself and putting that into the, my co-woofer <laughs> and um, at the same time them to, to back to me. A quick aside, I remember growing up and reading um, books about sled dogs, um, you know, Gary Paulson and writing the Iditarod. And I thought, oh, that's just amazing. I can never imagine developing a relationship like that. That must be so incredible. And if you think about the first time that if we go back in time, humans and our wild canids first developed relationships, it's just mind boggling to think about the trust that developed between you know, these two very, very different species, and sometimes a species at odds. What really resonated about these stories are when the huskies uh, saved their musher's life. You know, they, they went through ice, and they, they pulled their musher out, or they could sense that there was a danger. And in their, their own way of trying to communicate and get this across, uh, they, they managed to save, you know, their entire team. And that was something that was so powerful to me that I couldn't even imagine being able to recognize when an animal is trying to tell me something like that. But what I found in my work is that if, if we truly open ourselves up and we're willing to actually listen to these dogs on their level, not ours, you know, not like some master to, to an owner to, you know, like an alpha to beta, but realize that again, we have as much to learn from them as, as I could ever think about teaching. I think a whole new world opens up and it's frustrating at times. And I don't know if I do the best always. But when our dogs find something in the field that you didn't think existed or lead us to new discoveries, like I can't describe the, the full body sensation of, I, I can't believe this works. Like every time it happens, I'm still like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> There's a lot of things that as biologists, you discover alone that are kind of lone discoveries. And I think being able to share that with the dog uh, and this animal who's like your best mate kind of thing like that's such a special special thing like you've worked together to get do this incredible yeah. thing and and the dog would be so happy you'd be so happy so the dog would be so happy I mean it won't necessarily understand the exact scientific significance of what it's done but it would understand that it's done something really good and yeah just having that joint celebration must just be really really amazing amazing oh, to be able to share with perfectly. them Yes. No, you, you really, um, you said that perfectly because it really is a celebration and I wouldn't have found half the things that, you know, the dogs have shown me if it wasn't for the, for trusting them and, and being willing to be like, I don't know what Athena is telling me right now, but one of the most intense moments of my career was not working maybe with Max and Scooby. It was working with a dog, Athena in Nepal, and we were supposed to find pangolin poop which is one of the most illegally trafficked animals. And we don't know, uh, there's not a lot of baseline data on them. And so it's kind of this like, does this work? I don't know. And we didn't even have samples to begin with because of the restrictions to send samples to the United States. So we were doing it all on the fly, on the go, in country. So there's like a ton of pressure really riding on this. And, you know, we finally found some human found samples that were genetically confirmed pangolin. But there's this one, and I don't, you know, the other thing about bounders is, is we have to know, we have to take a deep dive into the ecology of our species. It's not just teach the dog the odor and go out and we walk and the dog finds things. We really have to analyze that landscape, the, the wind patterns, the, um, and 
how that species moves and lives on that landscape in order to guide the dogs to areas that can maximize them locating this information. But if we don't even have a lot of baseline data to work with, it's like a shot in the dark. It's really like finding the unicorn or Bigfoot. <laughs> and so in, in one of the situations, you know, one of the first times I went out with Dina, she had this weird kind of like looked under these leaves and pawed a little bit. And we don't want our dogs to paw samples, obviously, because of the, the genetic transfer can contaminate. But she, it wasn't like a digging. It was just like, I need to get this whiff and I'm confused. And I could see her hesitancy. And she gently unbrushed these, this leaf litter apart. And I'm talking about like maybe, you know, six inches of like leaf litter and getting down to the rotten level of like, there's a lot of, um, there's not a lot of odor obviously coming out of this. It's all been matted down. And she looked at me quizzically and I came over to check it out with her. And at this stage, you know, a handler could be, well, that's not an alert. We'll keep moving. Like, let's keep going. But if you're in tune to, figuring these things out with your dog. If you're curious with them, I can't describe the feeling. I I went down and I I looked where she had pawed and there's this shiny stuff coming up from it and this really nasty smell. And I realized that it it looked just like dirt, but it wasn't dirt. It was carapaces of, you know, all the insects that whatever this animal was ate. And that's, I think when I realized that pangolin bury their poop and I didn't read about this in any literature, I had no search, search concept to be like, oh, pangolins bury their poop. Hence, if Athena's digging, that means there's a poop there. Athena discovered that Athena taught me that. And when I looked up at her and she was like, kind of tilted her head, like, yeah. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, no way. And I was like, I know. Right. And I threw the ball. We celebrated. I mean, I'm even getting chills talking about it now. I mean, it was just this, the most joyful um, moment I could have ever have had uh, with a dog. And I, I felt like we were having this unspoken communication right there. Cause we were both shocked and we were both so happy. And then when we're playing then with her most favorite thing in the world, it becomes less about that ball and more about this engagement. And in that way, all that pride and joy and happiness goes into that reward. And they're like, I want to do this again. I can't wait to find the next one. And I easily could have been like, good job. Now let's collect the data and we have a job to do. But it's moments like that where working with dogs and doing it a little differently shows you just how much we could really learn from them. And I I thank Athena every day for that because it's taught me to continue to be curious and inquisitive and not, you know, not that I ever thought this, but the dogs aren't robots. They don't go out there and just perform this duty that we've taught them. Um, We're very much part of that process. And I easily could have pulled Athena off at that moment. And we never would have discovered that this was, you know, a pangolin poo. So (laughs) joyful poo findings. Oh, what an amazing thing to be able to share, like an incredible discovery to be able to share with her. That's so adorable. One of my questions was actually going to be, what has been your best field trip experience ever? Obviously, you've mentioned this pangolin one, but are there any others that really stand out in your mind as being like, that was a, a particularly good one? Oh, that's a hard question for me to answer because... For some projects, they're special to me because I worked in a really in- incredible environment. And other projects are really special to me because I, I worked on them with Max or Scooby. I would say some really pivotal moments in, in my career were when I, I worked in Cambodia and then in Africa for big cat surveys. I mean, we're talking about a, a bookworm, shy English literature major who um, has been given this incredible opportunity to do work in environments that I felt like I only ever read about in books and that only National Geographic explorers did, right? And here I was working and living in these environments and I was just, every day I had to pinch myself, like, is this real? Like, even even if I got, you know, a roundworm or tick disease or I had food poisoning, <laughs> you know, all the things that come with field work and, and traveling to remote locations, I still couldn't believe that little me was there, I guess. But other projects that were really meaningful were when I got to just be with me and the dogs and just out there in these landscapes alone, searching for this information. And one, another project that meant a lot to me was um, when I came back from Cambodia the first time 
uh, I had been working with a dog named Scooby who I didn't want to work because I wanted to work with Max. And, but we finally figured out our, our game in Cambodia and, and it was, he, he just, he was the best teacher I've ever had. And so I couldn't wait to go on another project with him, even if it meant that, you know, I might be delayed seeing Max for a couple of months. And we went on a cougar project. And again, the same kind of thing with Athena, where um, I didn't know that much about cougar. I, I could read as much as I could in a book, but I really lent into Scooby teaching me. And there are these times where he would alert at places where I didn't see anything. I was like, I don't, what are you telling me? And I would like take branches off of the spot. And sure enough, there was a cached kill where there was buried scat. And he was just so patient with me as I figured out all of this information about cougars. And I remember that project being really special for me because I think it was the first time that I um, felt like I had hit my stride. You know, up until then, I, I, it was a struggle. I didn't know if it was the best field for me. And did I like high drive dogs? They're very, you know, barky and loud. And a lot of it is, is managing that energy um, to make them less anxious. And I just kind of wanted to do quiet field work where, you know, I'm, I'm one with nature and I tease a bit, but you know, again, when I'm first starting out in the field, I had these ideas about what I thought field work was like. And Scooby showed me that it could be like that. You know, we were out there together exploring. We were explorers and um, he gave me that opportunity. So it's not like the most special project, but it's one of those memories that really is meaningful to me because I was like, I want to do this. If this means I get to work with you more, I want to do this. And so that's when I, I think I, I settled into like, let's make a career of this, you know, not just a seasonal, I, I pop in for these projects and do everything I can because I want to be your max, even if that means volunteering, like I wanted to do this full-time. So that was really special. And in one of my last projects with Scooby was really special. We went to Haida Gawaii and I didn't know it was going to be his last project. And I, maybe that's why it's so special, but we got to work with some incredible folks with BC Parks and Environment Canada. And we, we went to these uninhabited islands where there was these 10,000 year old midden piles with whale bones and just to imagine a culture living in these places. And we got to spend a week on this island together exploring storm petrol burrow surveys. It was beautiful, you know, just seeing orcas hunting off, you know, in the distance in the waters, seeing bears as we, you know, boated by different islands, just kind of being like, wow, we're really, we're really out here um, together. And that was really special. So yeah, I could go on. <laughs> There's so many. I haven't even really talked about projects with Filson yet, but yeah, I feel really fortunate. And I guess you've got a lot to be excited about with your with your your life with Filson from now on as well. Yeah, he is <laughs> seven, so he is he's getting more mature. You wouldn't think it looking at him; he still looks like a puppy. But he and I, our first project together, actually. So on on that petrol project with Scooby. He actually injured his toe and he was supposed to come with me on the project I went on with Filson. And because he was injured and needed time to, you know, heal, um, I was finally thrown into working with Filson and I, I hadn't worked with him before. Um, and I think the other really cool thing about this work is that we're there with the dogs for a ton of firsts, like their first time in a hammock, their first time backpacking, their first time seeing a bear, their first time, you know, finding this odor in the wild. And with Filson, he is just this goofy, playful little nugget of love. And some people even ask, like, is he even working? Like, is he even high drive? But if you don't spend the time to get to know him, you don't quite tap into his magic. And there I was, we were going to Yosemite National Park, a pretty high profile project. And I was just like, I hope this works. You know, like again, in that situation or scenario where it's the veteran handler with a new dog and kind of coaching them and, and imbuing them with confidence. Um, I needed to be that for Filson. I needed to do that for him because this was all going to be very brand new to him. And we were going to be putting a lot of pressure on him to, you know, bring his A game. And he brought, he brought his A plus 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 game. Um, and I just loved learning his little quirks. And I remember this one moment where we, we cliffed out. So we, you know, we read maps, we're out there alone. Um, we have to be very careful and, and safe. And so I am analyzing maps to not only find where I can find the species, our focal species, but also to make sure that I'm keeping my team safe. I mean, the, the, the boundary has, is doing multiple jobs at once. It may not seem like it, but we're, we're doing a lot. 
And so I'd read this map and I thought this would make a great way to come down and head back to our camp and this will be brilliant. And so we had worked really far out and I was really depending on this route back. And when that happens, you can get in this situation where you can't go back the other way because you would overwork your dog and that's not safe. So I really needed this route to work. And I, I got to the lip of this granite dome and I realized it looks gentle on the topo, but this is literally a cliff. And can we do this? And my alternative is possibly just as dangerous as what's in front of me. And I didn't know Filson that well at this time. I knew he was, he was incredible, but um, I really learned a lot about him in this moment because I, I went down to assess how we could basically make our way slowly but surely down. But I needed him to stay and wait until I could analyze the environment. And when I got to a safe spot and I could see below and see, yes, we have another spot, then I would look back up to him and I'd be like, okay. And it's so steep that I had to ask him to put his front feet on my chest and I had to reach around and grab his handle. And then I had to trust that he wouldn't leap into the air and just like, we're flying. And realize that we were doing a slow, <laughs> very gentle, okay, I have you. And now I'm going to put you gently on the ground and we're not celebrating here and doing crazy, you know, zoomies. We're being very careful. And um, maybe it was my energy or whatever it was, but he, he did this thing that I only ever developed with the veteran dogs I'd worked with. Cause we'd worked with one another for so long. And he was, he was a pro. He put his front paws on me. I gently lowered him down. I analyzed the next step. And we did that, you know, over and over and over and over again until we finally got to the bottom. And then we celebrated and like, I could tell he was nervous. He was kind of blowing air through his cheeks and my heart was really going, but it's moments like that too. I'm not suggesting people do that. But it's moments like that too, where you, that bond just grows in leaps and bounds because you put your lives in one another's hands. And Filson trusted me and I trusted Filson. And we got through that event together and it just made us such a stronger team to, you know, so in other situations I could be like, I trust that, uh, that Filson knows what he's doing. So I'm going to give him a little more leeway here than I might normally. So yeah, it's just, it, I'm never done. I mean, there's a million stories like that. These dogs are just incredible. <laughs> I feel like I could just ask you to just keep going and tell me uh, stories about all 24 dogs. <laughs> but if people do want to find out more about these stories, you obviously have social media. People can go on there. People can go on your website and read about these amazing dogs and these people that work with them. And the work that you guys do is just so fascinating and important so there's plenty more to to know for sure but thank you so 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 much for joining me today and for telling us about these incredible dogs oh gosh thank you so much for letting me just blab on that i i love talking about them and i love the opportunities so really the thanks goes to you for letting me just get to to effusely share <laughs> about um how awesome these dogs are A big thank you to Hannah for bringing us today's incredible episode and to you, beautiful listener, as always, for tuning in. If you'd like to support the work that we do here on the podcast, join us over at patreon.com slash earth to humans. We'd also like to announce that the ETH team is taking a break from the podcast for a bit while we work on cooking up exciting new content. In the meantime, share our podcast with a friend and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can keep up with us on Instagram at Earth to Humans Pod. Today's episode was produced by Hannah Mulvaney, and today's music is titled Dogs of the World in Color by Geese. <laughs>